This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello, welcome to Talking Dirty episode 12. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, we have got Alan, Edward, Herbert Gray, who is looking like autumn has struck in his very smart winter coat. Well, autumn certainly has struck. It's blowing a hoolie here. Yeah. Um, and it's it's decidedly cool. I hate this wind because it's going to blow the autumn colour away, but never mind. At least we're still here. And now over in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. Good morning to you. Good morning to you and to our special guest. He is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet and also the head gardener at Burley House on the Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire border, Joe Whitehead. It's uh, Joseph Alexander Whitehead, as we do in the small thing. <laughs> Does that make you sound important, Joseph Alexander Whitehead? Yeah, another another new sounds- for today. Another new for today. <laughs> I learned something new about my facial expressions off Alan earlier, and I, I learned that I can sound important, which is never <laughs> going to happen again. <laughs> and isn't it great to know that Alan is, in fact, a Herbert? Well, in the <laughs> nicest possible sense of the word, obviously. <laughs> Now, Joe, we know you really well and have done for years, but tell everybody who doesn't know about you, who you are, what you do, how you got into gardening, a bit of a potted history. Um, so I I work at a big house called Burley House, which is on the Lincolnshire borders. And it's a large treasure house with um, a big garden, 45 acres or thereabouts. Um, and it's got a 26 acre lake, but interestingly, half of it's got no water in the moment because it's all being dredged which is quite a, a thing to witness um so i've been gardening all my life as you can see i'm in my 20s and uh <laughs> so uh, yeah so i went into horticulture after school i come from a line of gardeners my my grandfather was a head gardener his father before him so i was probably probably kind of destined to the occupation but i've never looked back so i've worked my way i trained at wisley gardens and i i've worked my way generally in private estate or, or in state large estate gardens to the sort of this is the biggest challenge so far at burley and i have a i'm, I'm blessed to be part of a, a team of eight gardeners here and it's wonderful and as, as alan said it is nippy today and with the whole covid thing our team has kind of just worked through because, you know, gardeners, we can so easily socially distance, can't we, in 45 acres. So, um, but we have all been sat outside and have our tea breaks in an open fronted tea shed. And up until like Tuesday, it was 26 degrees, it was balmy. But this morning, we are all thinking that we need a 50 gallon drum with wood and standing around it, you know, roasting, you know, roasting chestnuts or something. It's that time of year nearly, isn't it? But, but no, it is quite nippy today. It's lovely and bright day though, and we've had some rain. You know, I'm very envious of your coat of arms on the front of your your jacket. It's yeah. very impressive. That's the Burley House coat of arms. Lions holding a... Um, and rampant holding. Rampant lions, yeah. Rampant lions holding uh, a big bundle of wheat, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we've just, we're just waiting to be rebranded, so um, which is a painful exercise. And because uh, <laughs> Burley's had their... Um, they've done rebranding. 
don't really ask me what that's all about, but we're getting a new uniform. They're all going to be in teal and grey, which I think is quite smart, better than navy blue. And the logo's been smartened up a bit. And then we get the old brand removed, cosmetic surgery, and then the new one stuck on. <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the other cheek this time, though. <laughs> you must have had to have been branded before because you've actually got a real full circle element to your career at Burley because you kind of started there. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, no, 16, 17 years ago, I left Burley and I was there for about four and a half years as an undergardener. And then I left from there to go to Wisley to study more. And then I've come back without intention. I was kind of in, approached about the job. They were, I think they'd been looking for a head gardener for quite a while and they were scraping, you know, they were really getting desperate. So they gave me a ring. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, they've not seen through all my multiple flaws. And and they are still here. So, uh, so yeah, so it was very, it was really interesting to come back. And I was coming back to a garden that hadn't really moved forward that much, but needed to be taken forward. And so it's been an amazing opportunity to, to de help develop these gardens and to bring in, to create much more of a visitor experience. You know, at Burley, there's been a lot of focus on the house because it's this grand treasure house with you know, incredible art collection and the whole, you know all the events including the horse trials which is this huge huge event where nearly 200,000 people turn up for a weekend and the gardens have been lovely and they were a great capability brown landscape but I would probably say since capability brown they haven't really there's been no massive interjection you know and so the gardens are a beautiful landscape beautiful trees and and, and the lakes and and some lovely bits but, but we've had this amazing opportunity to develop to put planting in that's been the exciting thing there hasn't been a lot of planting a lot of big borders and we've you know we've put thirty thousand perennials in in the last three winters that's going some actually the thing that fascinates me about burley is the amount of queens that have planted trees there i mean yeah queens. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is <laughs> There is, isn't there? Yeah. Um, they're, they're everywhere, Alan, honestly. <laughs> and trees. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, although she didn't plant it, she, it was, but it was planted to honour a visit that never happened. The current queen. In fact, you can stand at one point in the garden and see those three trees all in, in one go. It's amazing mm. kind of bit of horticultural history. Um, in fact, uh, they've collected a load of acorns this year because they have an acorn crop. I mean, fruit and nut crops have been amazing, haven't they? Yeah, they have. They've, they've been collecting acorns from some of the sort of like notable trees on the estate, including the Queen Victoria tree and one of the trees planted by William Cecil and some of the best capability brown oaks are there. And then they're getting sent off to different schools locally to be grown and planted. So, And including the, the oak tree that's about a thousand years old. So, uh, I mean, I don't know whether the genetics are any better, but... It, it, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because every, every seed is genetically different from its parents. So there is an element of surprise, perhaps. There's also an element of boredom. I mean, it's like me, I grow dahlias from seed every year. Um, and quite honestly, if, if, if it's non-scientific. Um, I just pick a parent that I like and take the seed. And for every hundred seedlings you grow, you probably get one that's worthwhile having. Talking of dahlias, I know one of the things you've introduced at Burley, not just for the look, but for the, the practical element, is, um, is a cut flower garden. Because uh, flowers for the house is such a huge part of what you do, and yet you were having to traipse around loads of those acres, loads of those 45 acres, to find the plant material. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we would take a significantly longer period finding the stuff before than arranging it um, 
and you know, imagine a house, you know, you make a nice bunch of flowers up for your kitchen, perhaps, you know, for, for norm, normal people, not you, Alan, obviously, because you have got a palatial palace to decorate. And, um, but certainly at Burley, the rooms are as big as my house. So, uh, so our vases are five foot tall, you know, and huge. So it, it was hard from that point of view to get big enough plant, flat, you know, material. It must be like decorating the church for Harvest Festival every week. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you yeah. get a, a biggish event and we might need to make eight or nine of those vases. Plus even, without, even without the biggest, big, biggish events. I mean, I've been around the Burley House um, on more than one occasion. And I mean, the flowers are always fantastic. Um, but as you say, I mean, the spaces that you have to fill are huge. Yeah. And, and, and then you have to compete with all that amazing antiquity. In fact, some of the rooms don't need flowers, so, you know, because it sells itself. I mean, it's a mate, it's a lovely thing to do, but the cut flower mm. garden has been a great addition. It's interesting because when you listen to the feedback from members of the public, even though the cut flower garden's a tiny little space really in, in amongst it all, it's one of the most popular parts that people talk about. I think people like to see what they can do in their own gardens. They like to see production, don't they? And, you know, yes. our cut flower gardens, you know, straight, in lots of straight rows, a bit like a kitchen yeah. garden. And, it's something well, that's very popular. During lockdown, I noticed that, I mean, our local farm shop, I went in um, with my mask, but I went in to, to get some seeds and the seeds were completely depleted. And I think everybody had got, not everybody, but, you know, a lot of people had got on the bandwagon and they were going to grow something from seed. Lots of it, of course, was vegetables and fruit and vegetables and things like that. But the cut flower business, I mean, has really taken off, grow your own. And you know, it's, it's sustainable, it's, it's friendly to, to the wildlife that we want to encourage into our gardens um, because lots of those cupola, hardy annual type plants are, are great for pollinators and it's just something that's very nice to do. I think everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and loving it. And to see it done somewhere like Burley, where it would be done on a much more professional scale um, by people who know what they're doing, if you know what I mean. Lots of people are just experimenting, but when you know what you're doing, and I mean, it's a great way to teach people how to do it, I think. Yeah, and 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 people tell us what they've grown and, and what mm. works for them. And 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 because we, you know, we try and encourage, you know, not so much this year because people, people can't write in a, in, a, in a comments book, but we encourage the feedback. And often kind of somebody will say, oh, I do this. And you think, oh, that's a good idea. And we'll get that next year. Because at least, you know, 70% of the cut flower garden is an annual crop so we can just so that's what's quite nice as well you, you yeah. grow. um we grew a, a love lies bleeding this year called um joseph's coat and it is the most technically made you know like like his most vibrant foliage yeah. thing it's incredible and um and we've used it in vases and it, it and and that was somebody's suggestion you know that we've we, we just got that seed that, that technicolor dream coat thing is the kind of flower that looks as if it's been imported from the tropics because it's so bright and so garish in a way yeah uh, but in a, in a bold setting and used correctly it could be fabulous yeah there's a there's a room in Burley called the red drawing room which is the most luxurious room you've ever seen i'm pretty sure the wallpaper is almost kind of velvet and it's all those beautiful red deep colors and it and i've done a vase in there and it's it just slots in quite nicely because <laughs> it's, it's hard to compete with what's in the room so you need something that's you know bold like that but but no so, the cup, uh, do you ever do you when you're when you're um allowed into the big house like that do you ever kind of kick your shoes off and sort of fantasize that it might be yours <laughs> no, not, not really no you know I, I don't even want to sit down on the chairs most of <laughs> 
Basically, they've got pine cones on them to stop people from sitting yeah, down. Yeah, well, that's to stop you sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> or teasels. Yes. So I, um, I often marvel at it, and you take it for granted sometimes, but one of the weirdest things is there's an inner courtyard of lawns in the middle of the house, and we have to wheel lawnmowers through these corridors. And it's, so it's the quite strangest experience of wheeling a, you know, a, a, a lawnmower through this amazing grandeur, desperately trying not to drop any clippings because then you'll get in trouble with <laughs> housekeeping stuff. And uh, so no, no not, not really, Alan, I must admit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm more at home in the gardener's bothy. <laughs> Which currently we can't go in because it's too small and there's a wood burner. And on a day like today, you're thinking, oh, for the wood burner in the corner. We're going to re-decamp to the education classroom, I think, for the winter, because it's a big enough room. But the only problem is it's those little short seats, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to sat like small children. Now, I get my throne taken in, Alan, because, you know... Ah, oh, good for I, you, I, Joe. I sit in the front with my throne, and my minions, uh, they can sit on the small chairs and <laughs> put them are, in their place. Are you carried in, like, on a sedan chair by your minions? Oh, yeah, and fanned in the summer with a massive <laughs> banana leaf. <laughs> I don't think that's unreasonable, you know. <laughs> I'm a very important man at Burley, you know. <laughs> now, I know you've brought show and tell. Is your show and tell from Burley or from your own garden? Uh, so, a couple of bits are from my own garden, but the, the bits I brought in, <clears throat> something I brought in from Burley, are apples. How'd you like them apples? <laughs> they are some apples, eh? So, um, they've got a story... So I, I had to collect a load of apples because there's some filming doing going on on Monday about Victoria, about Queen Victoria and apples and her love of apples, apparently. So I, I found a few different apples for them that she particularly liked and a few ones that are local to Burley. So this one is one called Barnock Beauty. And I live in Barnock. And I drive past the original Barnet Beauty tree every morning. And it's incredible. And I mean, this year it's absolutely loaded. Does that mean that Barnet Beauty was raised at Burley? Yeah, so Barnet Beauty was raised at Burley. It's a long storing cooking apple. Um, and it's got, I don't know if you can see, it, it's got the most amazing colour. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. Stamford and Burley have got an incredible sort of apple history. So Thomas Laxton who originated from this area and Brown of Brown's Nurseries was the head gardener of Uffington, which was kind of Uffington Hall, I think, which was kind of the great rival to Burley, Burley House. It, it, it's not there now. It burned down in the kind of sometime last century. And then there was an incredible gardener called Richard Gilbert who came to Burley in about 1863 or something like that and was at Burley for 30 years. And of his time, he was one of the greatest Victorian head gardeners, particularly in the kitchen gardens, because Burley had a massive, very renowned kitchen garden. And between the three of them, um, they, in, in one particular place called Water Furlong Allotments, whether well, it's allotments now, but Water Furlong Gardens in Stamford, they raised all sorts of amazing apples and were quite, you know, a formidable force in the Victorian period. And they raised this other apple, which is called Peas Good Non-Such, which is a, which is a, a wonderful name. And it's, it's a dual purpose, long storing dual purpose apple, 
And so for this filming, I had to find a lot of apples. So I found various different sorts. So I have tried this and it's really, you can tell it's also a, a cooking apple, but it's amazingly sweet and, and you know, with huge amounts of um, juices in it. So Peas Good Non-Such was raised um, between that three group of apple breeders. There's also, I didn't have time to go and guess it, but there's also a Lord Burley apple, which was raised by uh, one of the previous head gardeners kind of back in the end of the beginning of the 19th century and there's a couple of very old trees on the estate of, of Lord Burley and that's a beautiful apple because that's really crimson deep crimson kind of color um, so yeah so I bought these two apples to show you because um, I'd also found things like James Grieve and um, Lane's Prince Albert of course that was a popular one with um, Queen Victoria <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and uh, a couple of others that they wanted that were apparently her favourites. But Burley, Burley was renowned, had an amazing, you know, orchard collection, which sadly has gone by the by. But, um, but yeah, so, because I love apples and I mean, there's so many different sorts, isn't there? That could be a future project for Burley, though, to get them all back, couldn't it? Well, funny you should say that, uh, <laughs> Alan. And... um me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> we I'm are... Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> we are... Um, we're, yeah, we're, we're looking to, to restore and create gardens in the wall garden, which hopefully if, if we'll be starting that in January. So um, amongst, it's a massive site, uh, the wall garden, and it's been to a point restored as in all the, the walls and paths and it's been cleared. Sadly, all the glass is gone, but all the walls for the glass is still there. So you're halfway there to putting some glass back. And we're looking to create a kind of independent experience up there of gardens and, and a place where people can have events. But also one big section is going to be uh, a Victorian kitchen garden set in that middle of the Victorian period. And we're gonna try and recreate those kind of high days of the, of the kitchen garden. And we have the lists of the fruit that used to be there. So we will, and there's odd bits that still remain on the walls, odd espaliers and things, but we'll definitely look to restore as much of that as possible. So. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's amazing, really. It makes my, it's making my head spin a little bit, I must admit. Alan. <laughs> I'm currently trying to put plans together and, you know, structural plans so we can start putting hedging and paths and stuff in this winter. But um, yeah. I will show you one day. It's a particular challenge because the wall garden's so far away from the house, isn't it? Yeah, it's a mile as the crow flies. And um, quite, I don't know, I mean, old wall garden, it's been there for nearly 300 years. And... And they were often further away because, you know, the Lord or the Marcus of the time didn't want to see the hustle and bustle of 100 odd gardeners, you know, grubby gardeners like myself, um, you know, rooting around. They just wanted to see the, the pro, you know, the sort of the produce from their from their work. But but apparently I found out because I've been doing a lot of research on the history. The garden design is hopefully going to tell the narrative, the story of the gardens. Um, but apparently there was a path all the way from the gardens to the wall garden and the Marquis every Sunday would walk the path to inspect, you know, the, inspect the fruit and vegetables and the glass and everything. And that path was hoed every week, apparently. Imagine hoeing a, a mile path all the way to the garden. So, so yeah, so it is a long way, but I think possibly um, it might have been to do with water because there's springs at the top there. And I think maybe that might have been one of the factors that made it situated so far away because of the water supply. Uh, at the top of the estate but it is it is an amazing thing 
got the most incredible apple stores, huge apple stores that are still there, and a mushroom house, a massive mushroom house. It was a mushroom house, and then underneath the mushroom beds was where they used to force, was the forcing house. So that's where we would force the rhubarb and the sea kale and the chicory and all that kind of thing. But in fact, you walk down into the mushroom house and you step on these stone steps and your hand naturally kind of lands on part of the mushroom, the first part of the mushroom beds to steady yourself. And I've done it a number of times. And I think that gardener, you know, um, Richard Gilbert, who was absolutely renowned of his time, would have touched that spot because you always touch that spot just to steady yourself and so it's quite it, it really evokes such a feeling in me that uh, we're stepping in his legacy because he was you know you read I've read a lot about him he was absolutely exceptional as a gardener the things he was required to have a pineapple for the table at any point through the year so to be able to do that I know he had labor and huge amount but in those days their skill and understanding of plants and was just exceptional thing is though Joe is is probably as well as being the nicest guy you'll ever meet also one of the most modest people and Alan I know you can testify that the Joe is really one of the kind of foremost plants people we know I mean someone who really knows knows the plants and knows how to get the best out of them um, I'm always blown away by your knowledge yeah, I think I am too. But um, the other thing that I always loved about Joe is his generosity, because whenever you used to make the journey down to the studios in Norwich, where we were, we were all uh, broadcasting, you always came um, with a present, a gift for us. I mean, whether it be um, an unusual tomato plant or whatever it was, it would be something that none, none of us had probably grown before. And it's very interesting. Also, some I do have some agapanthus that came from you. Um, on one of those studio visits that uh, came from another garden where you used to be a head gardener. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Something from Joe is actually going to come back round with my Flomo. So, so gifts from Joe that keep on giving. <laughs> oh, it's because I love you all so much and you know it's lovely to share stuff isn't it? Now Joe, we had some Appley show and tell from Burley but I think you said you had one or two things from your own garden. Um, I just grabbed a couple of things. Um, don't have a, um, and it's this, this little salvia called Natch Villander. It's this beautiful oh. little salvia uh, with dark purple flowers. And, and it has not stopped flowering since the end of May, probably. It just keeps on going and it will go until the frosts. In fact, you know, often this is flowering at Christmas because we generally don't seem to get a lot of cold weather, do we? Till after Christmas. No, exactly. It's not the strongest of growers, I'd have said. That's the only thing. Not like some of the things like Royal Bumble and stuff like that, which is strong, you know, much stronger grower. It's a bit of a sort of spready thing. Not spready, but a bit lax, but it just sits next to our back door. It makes, it makes the bush wider than it is tall. Yeah, absolutely. That's the one. And um, yeah, it's got a beautiful, like a lot of salvias, it's got a lovely sort of almost blackberry smell when you crush the leaves. And But the flowers are, flower, salvias like this are so easy to grow from cuttings. And this would have, I have a tendency to acquire plant material and a walk around gardens. It's one of those afflictions, you know, <laughs> you get back and all of a sudden you, your pocket is full of it. It's inherited from your long line of head gardeners, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost, subli you know, you don't even notice you're doing it. <laughs> Yeah. If you can get a copy of that. Yeah. Never go anywhere without a pen knife and a plastic bag. <laughs> so, you know, we, you can take, as soon as you've got nice new shoots on this, you can propagate this very easily. 
And then the other thing I've got, which is still going and it's been flowering on the patio for, for all summer, is a cestrum called Nocturum. Cestrums, there's a lovely cestrum we you grow in the gardens called um, Parkweai, which is it's an evergreen shrub, basically. Not massively anything to write home about um, from that point of view. It, it's a nice evergreen plant. Um, it's quite poisonous, so don't go sort of like gnawing on the leaves or anything. But they produce these lovely little tubular green flowers and nocturum particularly, which is not hardy, so it'll have to be coming to, you know, in, into the, some protection over the winter. It's night scented to attract moths. And in the night, I think, I think I'm right in saying that Session Nocturum's common name is Queen of the Night. And the scent is, is unbelievably intoxicating. It is so strong. So this plant, it's, if you It smells a little bit like balsam, doesn't it? Yeah. I brought, but, but isn't it strange how things happen? Because yesterday I was working in the greenhouse and I looked outside the, one of the doors of the greenhouse and there was a couple of plants of Cestrum Nocturum there. Um, and I thought, oh gosh, look, they're packed with flower buds. So I tidied them up. I mean, took the dead twigs out and all the rest of it. And I put one on the sack barrow and I took it into the house. And last night I walked in and I thought, wow, what's that scent? And there, there it was. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And it would go right from the top, from the bottom of the house, right to the top. Mm. We, we take a plant into the inner courtyard at Burley, which is a big space, about the size of a tennis court, probably a bit bigger. And it's too strong for in the house at night. Yeah. So they put it outside the doors and it fills all this kind of inner corridor area with this scent. And it is quite, it's quite, it's, it's a very different smell, isn't it? It's, it's really rich, isn't it? Almost like you're eating it, not breathing. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I've noticed, yes. um, so the Cestrum parquia, which is different species, but hardy, and we grow it in the, in the gardens. We've got it in a couple of spaces, which are quite shady in early morning. And if you walk, the, when I walk the gardens quite early, I often walk them quite early in the morning, maybe 6, 6.30, when the shade is still cast over the shrubs. Parquia has a really exceptional scent as well. I hadn't ever noticed that really. And when, you know, when it's still shady, it's still going. So that was, that's something, uh, you know, you're always learning, aren't you? That you can't, yeah. you need yeah. lifetimes to learn it all, don't you? And yeah. I'd never noticed how strong that, so if you want a nice kind of night scented plant, Parquia is, is a beautiful thing. I mean, the flowers are nice, aren't they, Alan? They're quite green and, and. They are green. I mean, um, I think that's one of the, it's the kind of flower that you grow into. Yeah. Because I think. When you're when you're starting out, you look you'd look at that little green flower and say that's a weedy thing. I don't like that. What's well, not going to add anything to the garden? Let's get something bright red, orange, or yellow with a flower five inches wide, and then I'm satisfied. Yes. But you become you become um, you know intoxicated by the smell, the aroma, the scent of these lovely things. And it, I mean, it really does um, adds another dimension to the garden, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And and especially we've had some good summer's evenings this summer, haven't we? We can't complain. Yeah, about. we have. And it, it's lovely to sit out on the, you know. I mean, we've got a, a our, through our postman's gate, which is there's a kind of gloomy little tunnel to the, to the gate to the road. Um, we call it the postman's gate because he or she is the only person that uses it. But just between the gate and the wall, there there is a plant of Eliagnus abingii. Yeah. Um, and that's just started flowering. I went through that gateway yesterday morning, and I thought, oh, what's that? And there are these tiny little beigey grey flowers, um, like little elongated bells, if you like. Are just opening now and they'll go right the way through until November but there's that lovely sweet scent you won't smell it today because it'll be blown away by the wind but it was there yesterday morning. <laughs> yeah. I know just what you mean we've got them as standards in one part of the garden and yeah but we don't cut them we cut them at the right time so we get the flowers and 
And it yeah. is amazing because they're really insignificant flowers, aren't they? But the scent yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, if you've got the space, it's one of those plants that you can plant somewhere beside a path. I mean, I see it at Sandringham House, for instance, you know, and yeah. some of their meandering paths, you know, they've got large garden there. Um, you plant that, and I mean, it just adds to that, to that, as you're walking around, that lovely sort of, oh gosh, what's that? Yeah, that's oh, lovely, mm. isn't it? It's lovely. Yeah. See, it's one of those plants, you've got to be a seasoned gardener to appreciate these, haven't you? You've got to have gone for a few yeah. years and to get past all the gaudy stuff, you know, all the shallow shallow plants to get real quality. elevate yeah that's it yeah got to go past the brugmanses with a massive tulip, you know things and all that all that yeah so yeah comes to you later in in your gardening life doesn't it Alan? well do you know what i i think that brings i think that brings me round to a spot of flomo for people who don't know flomo the fear of missing out on any kind of fabulous plant it could be flower it can be fruit veg whatever um but my flomo journey this week started actually with a plant i discovered and i think this falls into that category of plants that you might you know come to appreciate when you get to the more elevated stages of gardening a bit more advanced and it's the one you gave me possibly last year um, and I've got to be honest, I planted it and I tried to put it in a place at the front where I wouldn't lose it because it was a little creeping thing, but I forgot about it and I planted lots of things around it and they sort of crowded it out a little bit. And then I was sort of pouring over this flower bed. I mean, I've got a small garden, so things shouldn't be able to hide for long. And, uh, and I thought, what is this? What are these fabulous little tufty flowers? And it was this funny little creeping Veronicastrum you'd gifted us, Joe. Oh yeah, the little uh, latifolium, yeah. Because uh, yeah, you sent me a photo, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. What is it? <laughs> yeah. And it's not what you expect of a veronicastrum, uh, you know, the fascination, the big tall border plant that sits at the back yeah. of the herbaceous border. It's, and, it, and if you grow it, it is quite prolific, isn't it? It's, it, it roots all over the place. <laughs> it's really it? crept right yeah. along the front. Yeah. And we planted some of that we did this uh, landscape feature and part of it's a, a waterfall and incredibly dry planting pockets around the stone and I planted a few of those and so that you know they it has been a hard year hasn't it summer for plants and keeping new yeah, plants going. and these they but they have they have not battered an eyelid with the drought and this is a dry spot with laurels over the top and they've so one of it's one of the plants that has been exceptional drought, drought tolerance in the gardens this year it's a pretty little thing, isn't it? With little yeah. tiny little flowers, little mauve. I've still got mine too, Joe. <laughs> you gave me one as well, and I've still got it. I think you gave me two or three, actually, two little rooted cuttings. Yeah. And I, I've still got them as well. I've got them, I, I plant them underneath the Wellingtonia as, as, as people come into the garden. Yeah. I also included in that um, a new form of um, Physalis, Chinese lantern. Yeah which instead of having the lanterns on the, it's, it's, it's just like the ordinary Chinese lantern, but instead of having the lanterns, its flowers are like a miniature chilies and they're orange at the base going down to a bright lemon tip. Um, and it's a, something monstrosum, Physalis something monstrosum. And it comes from Japan. And I'm told that there are only six plants in the country at the moment. So please, if anybody's listening to this, don't come and steal it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I know where you live, Alan. <laughs> 
<laughs> that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Veronicastrum, seeing this, then it then sucked me into a rabbit hole of Veronicastrums. And I realized that it is because I have a small garden, one of those plants that I haven't got, but I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to. You mentioned fascination. I also saw in a magazine, I think it was um, Veronicastrum virginicum lavender. I'm never going to say it. Lavendeltum, something like yeah. that. Um, and I thought, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know which I will go for because I probably can't go for many. But I, I need, I'm going to have to get a Veronicastrum, at least, you know, a couple. Fascination is a very good variety. I can testify to that because it grows down near our propagating house. But the one thing about it is, which I think makes it interesting, is lots of the flowers are fasciated. Yeah when you get two or three stems fused together and this flattened stem that look and a wider flower coming up. And I think they, they, I just find that, very, I find it fascinating. I find it interesting. Yeah. So Joe, uh, what would you like to bring to the FLOMO section of our Talking Dirty podcast? Um, just off the top of my head, two things I've been thinking about recently is, well, one is I want to find it again because it failed this year. So there's a, an amazing tree called a tuna sinensis flamingo. Oh, yeah. I think you've got this, Alan. Have you got this? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's incredible. So tuna sinensis is a bit like an alianthus, the tree of heaven. It's got really kind of like big wide leaves, very tropically looking. And there's a variety called flamingo, a cultivar called flamingo, which, which leaves in the spring a bright pink. It's quite a thing, isn't it? Real show-stopping plant. It's unreal. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And the, and the pinkness doesn't there's, last. There's, an, there's a form of acer that does a similar thing, I think. It has shrimp pink or flamingo pink for a leaves at the very beginning of the season. And it lasts mm. about six weeks, doesn't it? Maybe something like yes. that. And they fade to green. And of course, they colour up at this time of the year as well. Yeah, really lovely. Um, and we planted one and it failed at the grafting point. So we've got just the tuna sinensis growing away. So I want to look for that. And then something that might be a bit more of a challenge is... Um, so to relating to the wall garden project, there was a there was a peach that was grown and bred at, at, in the wall gardens, and it was called it was named Sea Eagle. Oh. A, and it was supposed to be of its time an exceptional peach, an early white fleshed peach, which is strange because bizarrely, back in April I saw a sea eagle at Burley. I nearly I think I talked to you about this story, and because there's a. I nearly, honestly, I nearly crashed my car. It was about six o'clock in the morning and I'm quite a keen sort of bird watcher. And I looked over to the right and I saw what I can only describe as a flying bus. And it was this, this immense bird and it was being mobbed by crows and they looked like, you know, they looked like, you know, small, tiny starlings <laughs> or something. And it's a sea eagle that was uh, released on the Isle of Wight, apparently, I subsequently found out. And it's been working its way around the country to different points, you know, finding territory, I suppose. So anyway, that's our digress. But um, there's, this there's this peach and it was, it, um, there's a label on the wall as they did put little lead tags, didn't they, with all the fruit yeah. names. And it's in- I know, a garden close to, I know a garden here that's got exactly the same label on the wall. Um, and the the um, the owner of that wall garden did actually have some plants of sea eagle. Really? And I, yes, and I think he got the, if I remember correctly, he gave me one, but alas, it died. Um, we put it in our greenhouse in the wall garden, but didn't survive. And I think, again, the graft point failed on that. Yeah. Uh, I think these were grafted plants. And I think 
Um, if it aids your search in any way, Joe, I think the original grafting material came from Scotland somewhere. Maybe even an island, in an island off the coast of Scotland. Oh, well, that's as far as I've got. So I, I know a chap who's a sort of renowned apple um, fruit grower in locally, and he had pinpointed it down to an estate in Scotland that had one. Yes. And he mm. thought that they had propagated it. And so I'm going to attempt to try and track that down over the winter because it, 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 it's just a beautiful story, you know, and, and the name is, I love the name. I think the name's brilliant. Um, well, if you managed to track it down and they've got a spare one, could you buy me one? I will. <laughs> Please. I will. Thank you. I will. I will. I will get two for sure. Um, <laughs> if, even if we can try and graft it, you know, get yeah. the material to have a go. Um, that's two things that I'll be searching for. There's lots of others probably. I, I don't know about you, Ella, I have a list on my computer of plants I'd like to find, which is... Well, I've got a book called Desirable Plants. <laughs> that, that's good. And I just, I just, I just put things in there that I'd like to have, you know, and I mean, it's a hardback book, thank goodness it is. But I mean, it's quite interesting to go through that book, especially in the winter when you've got, you know, inclement weather or something. And you just look through and suddenly you'll realise that, you know, there's something that you want. I know where I can get that now. And it would look nice with so-and-so, so-and-so and, so and all, all the rest of it. My FLOMO is going to be from a conversation I had with um, gardening friend called Lionel the other day, who inadvertently likes to drop little things into the conversation. Um, and he dropped into the conversation that he was full of elated anticipation because his Hyamanthus cassinius is about to flower. Mm. It's a South African bulbous plant. It's a member of the um, Amaryllis family. And it's, it's quite a tricky thing to grow, I think. Um, it, it's got to be free draining, but moist when it's growing and dry in the summer when it goes to sleep. It flowers around about now. And it is known as the blood lily. And it has a big red flower full of stamens that are topped with little um, yellowy orange bubbles on the end. And this kind of calyx, which is bright red as well. And... Uh, I said to him, I said, Lionel, how did you get this plant? Oh, well, I probably bought for six months at one of these plant sales. You know the sort of thing I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to go on the internet and have a look. So I went on the internet and have a look to have a look. And flowering size bulbs from a a reputable source are, and that means they've they've been uh, propagated in this country. They're not imported from South Africa. So they're fully tuned to our seasonality, if you see what I mean. Um, Uh, they were sold out and the bulbs were 45 pounds each. Ooh. And I thought, oh dear, that's a bit of a pinch. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> a little bit of an increase on sixpence, but there's a chance that I might be getting one or three. <laughs> never knows. Yeah. I hope you negotiate slightly better deal. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah. Well, that but, sounds but there you are. That's what you do. The other plant that I have to say I have acquired this year uh, this weekend, actual fact, was uh, Don and Sally, two gardening friends, came to the garden and they said, do you grow Fragipani? And I said, no, I don't. And have you ever grown it? I said, no. And they live in Norwich. And they said, well, there's a nursery room around the corner that's got five wonderful plants. Um, I nearly brought you one. And I said, well, I'd love one if you can get me one. And that, so that was, this was on Friday last week. Saturday, they arrived with a Fragipani. Um, which, which I don't know whether you know, it's called the Hawaiian Lee, which they make those lovely garlands out of in Hawaii, uh, the flowers, which are highly scented. It's a kind of gnarled and rubbery looking old tree with big leaves. Um, quite difficult to grow, I think, in this country. It demands a lot of 
sunshine in the summer. So it would be all right this summer, but it's not hardy. Um, and you need to keep it fairly warm throughout the winter. But we're giving it a go. And I've got, I could put it in the orange tree where it's reasonably warm. And its flower buds are just starting to, they were in a cluster and they're just starting to stand up. So they're about to open as well. So that's, uh, I just want to know what it smells like, because apparently it's, very well scented, shall we say? <laughs> I'm, just look, I'm just looking it up. Is it glossy? I know you are. Glossy, yeah, <laughs> glossy leaves and white flowers with little yellow centres. Well, mine's pink flowered because it's, uh, or at least the outside of the flower petals are pink because they're still in bud, but the flowers are elongating and they're pink. Oh, that looks lovely. That does look like it should smell really well, doesn't it? It, looks, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Looks like little, yeah. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> this is like this reminds me so much of our conversations during lockdown alan where you talk about plants and you could hear me tapping away in the background <laughs> looking them all up <laughs> but, i mean isn't that i mean aren't we lucky today to be able to have that facility yeah. of being able i mean joe was there on his phone straight yeah. away yeah. looking it up and i mean we, we're so lucky to be able to have that facility today that we can actually look at plants and we haven't got to have this vast library yeah of expensive books that get ever grubbier. I also yeah. think when you're a newer gardener like me and you don't know a plant so well, it's really useful if you see something and you're seduced by it in a magazine or a plant catalogue or a seed, seed list, you can look up and look at lots of different images to get a better perspective because one image might make it look like it's quite a compact plant or quite a big plant, but then you'll go and realise actually it's got quite a rangy habit. You kind of get a mental idea immediately based on one picture, but if you do a bit of a Google image search, you might yeah. then think, oh, it's not going to quite work in the place I wanted or it's not quite the, yeah, it's not quite the right plant for me maybe, or wow, that's stunning. That's even better than I thought. Yeah. Let's buy it. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's better than, you know, like old, well, not old catalogs, but like you get, I don't know, buried, roses in catalogues and they've always had a bit of Photoshop, haven't they? And there's there's the blue <laughs> rose that is completely blue and it's mauve. All the various <laughs> things are complete like zalias and roses, completely exaggerated flowers. And, you, and then it avoids that disappointment. They actually yeah. aren't going to get a blue rose. <laughs> You're going to get a mauve rose and it might be a bit washed out. But yeah, it helps with that, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a case of there's a variety called Rhapsody in Blue, which is not blue at all. It, it is a moody mauve. <laughs> yeah. I remember years ago, blind blue moon thinking. Yes. Oh, hybrid. Team. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough old thing. Don't get me wrong. But but yeah, was not blue. <laughs> blue it ain't. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to find a blue rose because that would be a retirement package, wouldn't it? A true blue rose. Well, yeah. if anyone can do it, it's you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Stumble across one. <laughs> Now, talking of avoiding disappointment, we can help a couple of people out because, as ever, you can ask questions on the Talking Dirty podcast. We try and squeeze one or two in at the end of, of every show. You can email hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. You can even attach a photo there. Or you can do what Sandra did. She's loving the podcasts, apparently. She commented underneath one of them on the YouTube page. And she wonders... Um, what's the best way to store dahlias over winter? Because she lives in Scotland, so she wants to lift them in case they get a bad winter. Alan, what do you reckon? Well, it's a very easy thing to do, providing you follow a few steps. Now, when your foliage of, of uh, traditionally people would, wouldn't lift dahlias until the foliage was blackened by frost. So when that happens, you cut them down, you leave about three or four inches of stem, you dig them up and you turn the, the tubers upside down. <laughs> So those cut stems, the moisture in those cut stems drain out of them. You want them to be as reasonably dry as you possibly can. Then when they are dried out, 
you put them in crates or trays. What we actually do is we uh, we save old potting compost. Um, you know, if you, you've got a bench and you, you're continually potting, you don't chuck the old compost away, you save the old compost, and we store them in that. Um, people used to store them in peat years ago. Uh, the trick with keeping them healthy throughout the winter is not to keep them too moist because they could rot. Um, the other thing is not to let them dry out completely because otherwise they'll wither. So it's between a, a choice between watting and withering. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully in the spring, when you go to uncover them, you'll look at them and you can see little nodules and little red dots around the base of the stems, which will be the new shoots. Now, if you're a canny gardener, um, what you'll actually do is you'll take a very sharp knife and you'll slice down through the stems and you'll halve the tubers or make them into threes or fives or sevens, depending on how big they are, providing each tuber that you've got has got a little red dot on it, which is the new emergent shoots. You've got a new plant and off you go again. It's very simple. Just don't keep them too wet or too dry. They've just, just got to be moist enough to keep the tubers firm. And we've got quite a few videos on lifting tubers, storing them, and uh, and I think also doing that and the kind of managing to, to pull a little bit off or cut a bit off. So we'll put a link so that you can go and look at those. And talking of other videos we have, Colette has been watching our video on figs and she has just been given a fig in a pot, a tiny pot. She's in the Northwest of the UK and wonders when should she repot it because she really doesn't want it to die because it was a gift. So Joe, figs. Um, so, Figs are quite tough plants, you know, that what, what often happens with figs is you get a poor crop because a fig to ripen kind of takes two seasons. So it's it's not at this time of year, often you get kind of these almost figs that don't really form and they look like going to form. But if you look in the little leaf axles, you see tiny little figlets that are going to be what's going to produce next year and often it's those that get damaged over winter and too much exposure that means you get a poor crop but figs are pretty tough plants there's there's a classic one called brown turkey which which will take over your entire garden given half a chance and so old gardeners used to and i bet if we dug up areas in the wall gardens of Burley you'd find it so they would plant them either on a massive slab of stone or almost in like a stone container under the ground to try and tame their tame the roots so they didn't grow so big so um i wouldn't i don't think i'd have, i would they're, they're going to need a nice soil-based compost like a john innes number three it, they, they they like a lot of um you know they're, they're strong plants they like a lot of um you could add a bit of you know well-rotted manure into that if you wanted to i personally don't think i'd be worried about potting it up now or in the spring if you pot it's a, you know plants are still growing quite rapidly now and so they'll be able to put a few roots out into that new compost um i wouldn't think about pots potted plants is particularly if she's in the northwest and she's going to get some colder temperatures if it's going to stay in a pot i'd still be inclined to put it in a warmish spot for the winter so either you know if she has a cold greenhouse or a south facing wall somewhere where the that pot and that root ball is not going to freeze because that is when you do get problems with hardy plants that in pots when they the root balls freeze for depending on the winters that we get but so i don't know whether she's looking to you know if it's a small plant it's going to really you know i would pot it several sizes on and you know i'd be happy to do it now or in, in the spring really don't let it dry out you know lots of times people forget about watering plants in the winter plants need to you know to keep going and like a a tip when you've got 
in plants in a cold greenhouse is it often keeps plants just slightly in growth and they're not falling into dormancy so it's always worth still to feed plants in the winter but at a very diluted rate just to keep things just ticking over otherwise you end up you know finding plants get a lot of pests and disease but yeah nice soil based compost john is number three bit of organic matter knocked into it and pot it on now or in the spring give it some protection over winter and and as Alan says, with your tube, you know, with your daily tubers, it's never good having a withering tuber, is it? I was desperately trying to get. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find the appropriate point. So I'm, I'm saying it anyway. <laughs> you know the level of humour that we're used to, Alan. This is why it's. I do indeed, but you just helped, you just helped you just helped me with my fig uh, with the fig question as well because I have a fig called Black Ischia, uh, which is a variety um, that has grown at Great Dixter, and I got it as a cutting from Great Dixter. I didn't pinch it; I was actually I did actually buy it, but it arrived as a rooted cutting, and I've been growing it in a pot to grow it on a little bit. And I have to say, I did have about three fruits on it this year. Um, they were quite small, very black and very, very sweet. So if anybody wants to grow a fig that is quite delicious, um, and it grows outside a great dixter on one of the walls of the um, terrace, and the terrace is higher than the garden. So, you know, it's, um, it grows very well there. It's very prolific and it, and it fruits very well. So it's a, a variety called Black Ischia. Wow. I think this must be our longest ever podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of gardening chat in there. <laughs> <laughs> That certainly is. Oh, and are, are the puppies now starting to play, Alan? Yeah, you can, I mean, I'm sorry that they were asleep when we started and they've just woken up and they've, they've ripped um, a, a Marks and Spencer's canvas bag to pieces. They just started on a rather nice reed basket that I just saw it in time and, you know, sort of signal to Sarah, could you pick it up, please? And she, she's rescued it. But um, yes, they're little devils. <laughs> how, how old are they? Uh, they're nine and ten weeks old. Oh, lovely. And Charles Spaniels. Oh, lovely. Lovely. So they still got, have they got needle teeth yet? Or they... Oh, they've got needle teeth. <laughs> needle teeth, yes. You've got needle marks yeah. on your arms then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've just, been, I've just seen my tree surgeon coming in to see me, so I'm going to have to go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute riot. Joe, it's wonderful to clap eyes on your lovely face. And um, let's all catch Not, up soon. Likewise, can't wait to see you all in person. Take care. Yeah. Okay, all the best, Joe. Bye. Bye. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.